1: Brian Levitt topic Pie, Invesco Global
0: Market Strategist. He is Brian Levitt with us with Invesco and a lot to talk about in the year ahead. And what's so interesting to me, to work off the chairman's comments, it's not a glass half full. <laughs> that was an optimistic speech by this chairman, wasn't it, Brian?
2: Yeah, maybe perhaps a little bit too optimistic. I mean, it's a it's a it's a, <laughs> good, like to hear. <laughs> it's a good backdrop for risk assets, don't get me wrong. I mean, to think that we're moving to this new greater level of economic activity is is lightly over is likely overstated it. So I think the, the, the key story here is we're getting back to an environment of more stable growth with a better policy mix that is helping uh, business sentiment and you know, helping business activity. And so it's an improvement from where we were in the summer of 2019. But, but to think that we're going to a, a better, significantly better sustained level of growth is overstating it.
3: So, Brian, what would you characterize as a sustainable level of growth? I've heard ranges from as low as 1.5% GDP to maybe as high as 2.5%. Kind of where do you think we're going to be for the next 12 months?
2: Yeah, I mean, real GDP should be around two percent, and you and you add a bit for inflation to get a nominal number somewhere slightly below four percent. And what's most important for investors, rather than getting that tense place right on GDP, is is two percent good enough to support corporate earnings, which I think we would all argue the answer is yes, but not so strong to bring forward inflation to lead to Fed tighten to end the cycle. So if you get that big story right, modest growth, benign inflation, easy monetary policy, it sets up nicely for risk. Acid. I'm
1: trying to rip my, uh, wrap my head around the idea that a lot of people are saying, which is that comps will just be easy. This is classic Wall Street. I don't want to say manipulation, but manipulation <laughs> right. that basically uh, things aren't going to be as bad as they were this year. And so everyone's going to be really happy. And it's a really low bar to cross. Do you buy that? Yeah. I
2: mean, the market's starting to sniff some of that out, right? That's that's all-time highs. But I think that you know we, we had gotten to a place where people had gotten really pessimistic amid a bad policy mix. And to the point where we inverted the yield curve and you had some pundits and strategists saying we were going into a recession. Quickly,
1: yeah. bad policy mix. You're talking about the Fed hiking too soon. You're talking about trade tensions. I'm talking, talking about, about both. About both. Okay.
2: I'm talking about both. So you know I, that's not mean specifically saying bad policy mix. That's the currency and bond market and financial conditions saying bad policy mix. So we created an, an earnings recession. And we created a very weak economic environment. We inverted the yield curve. Now that we've backed that off, we've backed away from that, directionally things are improving. So, yeah, comps are low, but the good news is economic activity is improving. The yield curve has normalized a bit, and earnings should should carry through, and, and the markets are sniffing that out ahead
3: of time. So, Brian, everybody's thinking about 2020 right here. We've already had a great year in 2019. As I think about 2020 should my expectations be in terms of returns low single digits mid single digits i don't think anybody's banking on the kind of returns we've had even off of the you know the highs the 20 uh, the trailing 12 month highs is it still kind of a low to mid-single-digit return expectation for next year?
2: I actually think we can do better. I mean, remember the, the last time we had a, a mid-cycle ease in the 90s, um, you know, you had a very good market for a number of years. Now, ultimately, it ended badly in the late 1990s, but you got to very excessive valuations and you got to a point where everybody loved equities. Right now, we're not at a point of overly excessive valuation. Stocks are still cheap to bonds, and I don't think everybody loves. Equities. I think we still have more Americans playing the lottery than than buying stocks. And your odds in the lottery are one in two hundred million. The stock market hits a new high every sixteen days. Yeah, but the lot the super lotto is two hundred million dollars. Right, lottery. exactly. And, and yet we're yeah, at all right, time highs buying in the market. Yeah,
1: Tom, are you out there buying a lotto ticket?
0: I'm a lotto
1: yeah, we do that. You do. You he's do lots of lots of lottery. Cash
0: leverage. I, I'm triple cash, triple, triple cash money. fund. <laughs> we skim a little off the top for the, to lottery. the
1: lottery. He's 100 percent leverage cash <laughs> plus lottery tickets. Yes. That is that is that is a classic 60 uh, 40 uh, strategy. Here we're speaking with Brian Levitt, vesco Global Market Strategist. I'm just wondering, setting up for uh, 2020, we are seeing a bit of a tick up in consumer defaults, particularly in the auto loan uh, and credit card sector. We are seeing tightening lending standards. We've seen a little bit of stress in the triple C rated credits, at what point does that matter? Well,
2: it'll matter if you see lending standards tighten significantly, and that starts to carry through into you know what type of demand you get for these loans, and you start to see spreads go out. So I think all of this was a part of we had to carry through a bad policy mix, which which strengthened the dollar a bit, hurt commodity prices a bit, starts to hurt high yield a bit, and hurts high yield. Then you know you start to see some tightening of lending conditions. We're we're backing away from that now. So you're right if you see the credit cycle deteriorating mean you got to get the credit cycle right if it starts to deteriorate meaningly then all those pundits in the summer that were saying we're heading to a recession are going to be right if if i'm right and that a better policy mix extends the credit cycle keeps lending conditions relatively easy, keeps spreads relatively tight, then this goes on for longer than most people believe it will.
0: Yeah, I look, Brian, at at the expertise of Invesco and Oppenheimer with that uh, uh, meeting uh, this year, the international call, meeting after meeting, interview after interview we have, people are saying, finally, it's time for international to catch up. What's the why of that? Why will international catch up to Amazon and Apple?
2: <laughs> well, a lot of people, I mean, they, the valuations are certainly compelling. And particularly in the emerging markets, there's some very intriguing growth stories. The challenge has been for the last 10 years, we're in a strong dollar environment. And, and so when you get to a better policy mix in the United States that stabilizes the dollar and you have stimulus outside of the United States, it starts to feel a bit like 2016 into 2017, where directionally policy was good globally. Mm -hmm. And that started to unlock a lot of value in emerging markets and Europe. So that's where the optimism comes in. I'm not ready to eliminate U.S. I think true U.S. growth companies are going to continue to do well. Mm -hmm. But for investors that have not been in emerging economies, better policy mix, lower valuations, setting up for better expected long term returns, it makes sense to be there.
3: Ohio State, Michigan. Is this oh, the year God. that Coach Harbaugh is going to get over the hump? <laughs> I mean, as
2: a as a as a Michigan grad, I should probably say yes. Um, what my, is it like three
0: hundred thousand heart... people at the game? Something yeah, it's like crazy. That. This my, is the the college is the
2: game. game. My my heart says yes. I'm afraid my head okay. says no.
3: <laughs> this might
2: be it.
0: <laughs> it's like <laughs> every Mets fan out there. <laughs>
3: yes, every Mets fan out there. Brian Levitt, thanks so much Thank for joining you. us, Invesco Global Market Strategist. It's I it's thought the Purdue rivalry. was a big
0: game. Purdue, Ohio State. No. Is that Oh. No. no. Ohio Mission?
3: State, Michigan.
0: We just got another
1: new. No. New. No. That's <laughs> you're, you're different than the up. Abramowitz new. No.
0: That's the Sweeney new. No. Yeah, no. this one's
3: big, and it's at high noon. The TV networks would love for it to be in prime time Noon prime, on but, Saturday? Yeah, but Ohio State, Brian Michigan, they for say you it's I'll be noon, watching. Thank you. High noon, and we're going to be watching. We so.
0: will be watching. Brian so Levitt, thank you so much. Out of Ann Arbor. This is an honor. Of course, we've done a lot on fashion and retail on Bloomberg Surveillance. We thank someone like Vanessa Friedman at the New York Times or Robert Burke, of course, with all he's done in retail consulting. Steve Sadoff is with us. He is the one that brought life to a firm called Saks Fifth Avenue. He now works for MasterCard, Lending Advice, Colgate-Palmolive, Aramark, and others. And we are thrilled he could join us after this landmark day for New York City Retail. It's Audrey Hepburn outside of Tiffany's it's gone what does Tiffany's look for the younger generation they don't know who Audrey Hepburn is do they
4: no they don't and Breakfast at Tiffany's has an image connotes an imagery that is uh, uh, wonderful for a generation of consumers but the next generation of consumers has to think differently about Tiffany's. And I think that right. the opportunity with the acquisition by LVMH is to really yeah. transform that brand. And it, I, th- I think this is yeah. going to be a great one. It's Lisa, a win win Le- for both.
0: Lisa Bramowitz wants are rent the runway for jewelry.
5: <laughs> which is, totally. Which
0: is, you know, Tiffany's has to find a new path as well. What is their path to sustain revenues? given the synergies and given the high hurdles of a 16 times EBITDA price?
4: Well, there's so many opportunities with LVMH and uh, Tiffany's. I think you look at it from a geographic expansion. LVMH mm-hmm. has so many capabilities overseas, especially in Asia, that Tiffany can tap into. I believe that in the US, there's a lot of opportunity to modern continue to modernize uh, the Tiffany brand. Uh, the work that Reed Krakoff and the team did over the last couple of years, I think, has made some progress, but they need to elevate the price points. Uh, they've done a good job at what I call some wait, of that entry don't price Don't say Mrs.
0: Keene's listening. Don't yeah.
4: say that.
1: But wait, hold on a second, actually. This is important. You said elevate the price points. I yeah. thought it was the opposite, that to modernize, they had to create a bigger range with an increasing number of offerings on the lower end in addition to the high end.
4: I think you've got to do both. No, I think that to me, Tiffany, uh, and I'm not an expert on Tiffany as much, but I think that they've done a decent job with what i call the sterling silver but what you need to have is a uh uh lvma lv the louis vuitton brand is masterful at what i call the good better best within luxury price points so you have to win at the lower level lv has a lot of entry price point product tiffany needs to play have both that entry but then the aspirational higher end price product as well so you've got to play across all the price points of luxury
3: so, Steve, that Tom mentioned that 16 times EBITDA valuation. When I saw that yesterday, I was shocked because when I think retail, uh, you know, I think, you know, a struggling industry, shrinking store bases, why is luxury doing so much better than just retail? broader retail?
4: Oh, I'm not so sure that that's necessarily true. Okay. I think that if I look at luxury and aggregate, so if I take the MasterCard spending data, for example, and they're, they're terrific at laying out what's going on in categories, uh, the overall consumer, let's say the forecast for the seasons, holiday season is about 3.5%. It's been up in the 3% range this year. Luxury is down 2.7% this year. So luxury itself isn't, in the U.S., isn't performing better than the rest. Actually, if I look at the Walmart and the targets of the world, they're performing far better than the aggregate of uh, luxury. So the opportunity, uh, you know, I look at the LV opportunity uh, with Tiffany is uh, massive. But this isn't about retail versus, you've got to separate retail versus brands. Brands aren't selling, you know, if if we're saying we're selling a department store retailer, the multiples are very low, but consumers are buying brands where they're distributed is changing. It could be the internet, it can be through omni-channel, through almost any kind of a channel. Tiffany is a brand more so than being a retailer. That's why it's commanding the kind of multiple that we're talking about. And this
1: distinction is really important right now, especially uh, there was a report uh, that Saks Fifth Avenue's headquarter building on Fifth Avenue, actually saw a decline in its property value of 60% over five years. And this sort of speaks to the fate of retailing. And as the former CEO of Saks, I'm wondering, what do you think is the path forward for retailers, not brands? Well,
4: it depends upon which retailers we're talking about. Again, I look at a uh, Walmart and a Target. They're both killing it. And they're winning because they're uh, omni-channel, meaning the consumer wants any product anywhere. They want to be able to do, uh, to get it. So they've invested in infrastructure, single view of the inventory, single view of the customer. Buy online, pick up, pick up in store. If you looked at Target, for example, they said that 80 percent of their internet growth, which was about 40 percent, was being driven by yeah. pick up in the store, ordering it online, picking it up in the store. So they have made the technological infrastructure investments as a retailer. <laughs> They're also investing in uh, across uh, analytics. So big retailers have to make big yeah. investments. So that's the direction that you're going. But again, small, pl- you know, you've got to have scale, yeah. you've got to, uh, and you've got to be offering the product and the experience that consumers want.
0: Steve, St. yeah. thank you so much for being with us, Steve. I just think the large turquoise wire bla- bracelet and 18 karat white gold with the turquoise says Farm Girl. I mean, it really does. $3,400 at Tiffany's. I mean, the turquoise. Are you, you know, going to buy that for me? That Santa Fe kind of <laughs> thing. Thank you. you know, that, that does say Farm Girl. Secret, Tom, Sa- that's secret so sweet. Santa.
1: <laughs> It's not so secret, but I like it. There it, it is. Thank but, you. I mean,
0: come on. There's turquoise out of Santa Fe for Tiffany. Steve Sadoff with us, of course, with MasterCard. Fiona Frick is with Unigestion of uh, London, and they manage based on risk. And this goes back, folks, to the laureate from Stanford, William Sharp, and the sharp ratio, and the idea of the reward you get versus the risk taken. Fiona, we are thrilled you're with us. Did your firm capture much of this up 25% 2019
6: Yes, I must say that we did because we turned positive on the economy in January, although uh, the the macro environment was uh, de- decreasing. We, we saw the move of the central bank in the U.S. as a sign that they would... Yeah a sort of floor for the equity. And uh, since then, we also see that macro environment has been getting a bit better. We measure uh, economic behavior using what we call diffusion index of different characteristics of the economic cycle. And we saw that since January. There were more news coming up on the positive side than there were news on the negative side, which showed that uh, right. although the macroeconomic environment was going down, it was stabilizing. Is so we went into growth assets in January, and we right. get, went into even more in, yeah. in summer.
0: summer. was so interesting, Fiona, and this is with so many people who really not enjoyed this rally, is the now what of it. Are your vectors of your diffusion index, are they still moving higher, moving green, where you can stay invested in equities?
6: So we base our decision on three things. So first, the macro environment, second, valuation, and third, sentiment. So the macro environment, we still find it positive. IMF just went out with some statistics around 3%. We share that view, and 2% is, is, is a decent growth. Uh, the problem is valuation today. Obviously, we are at the 80 80 percent percentile of valuation valuation for the S and P 500, perhaps 60 70 percent for Europe. So obviously stocks are much more expensive than they are they were a few months ago. So we are positive on the macro. Negative, we would say, on valuation, because things are becoming more 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 expensive, mm-hmm. but positive on sentiment because sentiment we saw that the the, the rides which uh, took place right. in the market since January was not followed by a lot of people, and uh, yeah. you can see obviously retail funds went mainly into bonds etc., uh. The results of companies were quite positive on on the positive surprise side. So we remain positive on sentiment. So I would say that we remain positive on two data, which is the macro environment and the sentiment, and negative on valuation. So we are overweighted in equity, but we've put some optionality if there is some correction that could okay. happen uh, at some point, as long as the macro environment is good, we will stay there.
0: I got to bring in my colleague Paul Sweeney. He's in charge of optionality here. Paul,
3: <laughs> so Fiona, a lot of investors are saying they're seeing more value in uh, European markets, maybe even emerging markets relative to the U.S. What is your view?
6: I think in the emerging market, there's more uncertainty, uh, depending on on political states, et cetera. Uh, We are still, uh, it's true that in terms of valuation, they are cheaper than U.S. and Europe, but they are cheaper for a reason, that there is more risk. Uh, The growth is mainly in U.S. next year. Uh, We are still, we are positive in Europe. We see a a sort of uh, stabilization of the economical scenario. Germany floated with, the, with with recession but it is getting better and we saw that uh, we could have at one point some fiscal policy in some country especially in Germany and in the Netherlands which would uh, pro- provide perhaps a cap to uh, to if the if if this macro situation were uh, getting worse. So we are positive on Europe because we think the situation is stabilizing. We saw that the monetary policy has been quite clear. Uh, Mrs. Lagarde has been quite clear that rates will remain lawful for quite a long time. Yeah. And there is more consensus about the need of a fiscal policy in some countries.
1: So just uh, looking right now at what you're doing with money, I was looking at some of Una uh, di- different moves over the past few years, an increasing push into private equity, direct lending. Uh, what do you think the opportunity is there? Where are you investing with those direct lending strategies?
6: So we do mainly private equity, and uh, we we see strong demand from from clients in a period where obviously equity are quite uh, valued, and that the bonds are, are not delivering the return that would be expected for for pension funds and insurance. So there is there's really a move from our clients to uh, private assets, and private equity being uh, one of the important uh, part of the cycle. So it's true that we we invested. At more in private equity in 2017 as we did an acquisition of a company based in Zurich. We are specialized in the small mid markets because we believe that there is a place where you can construct a more positive performance due to the fact that when you buy a company, the, 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 the progress will be done mainly by business transformation and not necessarily on adding leverage on leverage.
0: Fiona, thank you so much. Fiona Frick with us, Unigestion of uh, London. Greatly, greatly appreciate your attendance today.
1: We have joining us the author of Economic Modeling in the Post-Great Recession Era to try to understand whether these forecasts are all that accurate or whether they've gotten less predictive. Uh, Sarah House, Wells Fargo Security Senior Economist joining us now. Sarah, I want to go to that point because there have been a lot of predictions in the past few years that we're going to see a downturn, that we're going to see the dollar weaken. They have not come to fruition. Do you feel like forecasting has become more art and much less science in the post Great Recession era?
7: I think we certainly have, just as you've seen a lot of the rules change, or at least what we thought were previously held assumptions are are harder to hold now. And then I think more recently, of course, we've seen an added dose of political uncertainty enter into the forecasting realm. And so you've had to make a lot of assumptions about what some of the policy environment is, perhaps much more so than than we did in, in prior expansions.
3: So, Sarah, this economy has really been driven uh, by the consumer. We've seen some weakness over the last several quarters, obviously, in manufacturing and business investment. As you look out to 2020, is it still the consumer that's going to push this economy forward?
7: the consumer that's going to be primarily in the driver's seat, but I think we're going to see some convergence. So there are some tentative signs of the industrial sector activity there at least stabilizing. Um, It's nothing really to write home about, but it's at least no longer getting worse. But I think you're also seeing some moderation in the consumer sector. So we had a really good middle part of the year where spending was growing in real terms about three and a half percent. That's still a little bit better than what disposable income is doing. And so we're, we're Seeing a, a bit of a moderation there, but it's really just kind of a return yeah. to trend, and, and fundamentals still look pretty good. So, I'm um, still expecting some good numbers out of the consumer next year.
0: Sarah, in the time we've got left with you, your magic is a single page. We'll write it, it'll have three charts and some brilliant text. Get the ball out of the park on our health insurance costs. The CPI health insurance cost is a double digit moonshot. Are we finally 12 years on from a horrific uh, Great Recession? Are we finally back to legit 4% plus per year healthcare inflation?
7: Well, I think we're, we're moving that direction. So, not nearly to the extent that the CPI insurance numbers cover. And, and those yeah. don't actually feed into the Fed's PCE mm-hmm. deflator. But we, we've seen PPI health insurance pick up. That is um, subject to, to where the PCE numbers come from. And basically, you know, we've had labor costs in, in the healthcare care space picking up, um, rising faster than, yeah, than but, inflation for seven years. So, you know, there's, there's only so much margin compression that we can see here before okay, some but, of those but, costs are passed. This, on. Is,
0: this is critical, Sarah our listeners aren't living PCE. They're living mm-hmm. healthcare costs, which is not the number one or two, but maybe it's the number three thing I get in mail. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, does the Fed understand our inflation is different than their
7: inflation. I think they are. We saw that even in Powell's speech last night, where he he mentioned that um, you know a lot of households feel inflation is higher, whether it's looking at what your housing costs are doing versus how it's it's actually measured, healthcare costs. You know, we see it in the auto sector where nominal transaction prices have been rising consistently, but because of the way inflation is calculated um, you know the Fed knows that it's a bit lower and they're they're not worried about a few tenths here, here and there
3: so sorry I mean does that suggest that right now the market is discounting one rate cut in September is that kind of where you're figuring it's going to play out
7: so right now we still have one more rate cut in, in our forecast in Q1, but that's predicated on the assumption that we don't get any meaningful phase phase one deal, and we still see those December 15th tariffs go, go into place. So trade is still the, the primary driver, I think, of, of the near-term Fed outlook. Um, if we yeah. do get some sort of deal, then I think we'd, we'd have to revisit that where that still is you know really the, the significant right. near-term risk on the horizon. So it's, it's yeah. all going to lead back to trade.
0: So, Thank you so much. Just brilliant on healthcare inflation. Can't say enough about that. We protect the copyright of our guests. Please get that important essay through Wells Fargo. Our interview of the day in politics, it is with James Stravitas, the Admiral, author, out with a wonderful new book, and of course, writing often for Bloomberg Opinion. He is a Carlisle Group advisor. Admiral, you know I've wanted to talk to you for days here. There was a point in 74 and 75 where it was not cool to do what Stravitas did. And at that point, also, James Stravitas, there was a marine aviator named Spencer, who in 1976 or whatever actually went into the military. It was the opposite. What do you and the Secretary of Navy, Mr. Spencer, agree on that is so appalling of his termination?
5: I think it is appalling that he's been uh, abruptly terminated over a disagreement about good order and discipline in the service, Tom. And what's happened here is President Trump has chosen, I think, unwisely to issue pardons to uh, a trio of war criminals. One is in the Navy, a man named Edward Gallagher. Uh, he was convicted of posing with corpses, taking trophy photographs, <laughs> completely unacceptable. Um, Secretary Spencer disagreed with the idea that he should. Uh, continue on with his uh, seal pin Mm -hmm. that came to a head over the weekend Uh, Secretary Spencer was fired not to put too fine a point on it.
0: Uh, Seven years into your tenure with the Navy I got my dose of the Navy like so many of our listeners which was centered on the authority of Richard Gere and Deborah Winger an officer and a gentleman? <laughs> and the answer is there in, the, in the movie, folks. And for those of you younger that haven't seen it, go see it for what it is. I'm sure it's dated. But that movie was the transition of staff or enlisted over to being an officer. Explain the tension here between the officers and the enlisted with this seal that uh, President Trump is supporting.
5: Um, I think in this particular case, Tom, the SEALs are very distinct from the rest of the Navy. They don't have that kind of uh, abrupt, bright, shiny line between enlisted and officer. And in fact, um, accused alongside Chief Petty Officer Edward Gallagher are both officers and fellow enlisted. Those SEAL teams tend to play very loosely across those lines. But here's the point. Here's the point, Tom. Um, With these SEALs, we ask them to go into the worst kind of combat, the harshest hand-to-hand, the hardest thing anybody does. So what Secretary Spencer was trying to do was say simply, let's take this case and uh, put it in front of a jury of SEALs and let the SEALs as peers make that determination whether or not uh, Chief Gallagher should continue on. I think that would have been the right course of action. Um, However, President Trump, as is his right, chose to reach in and simply execute a pardon in this case. And that undermines good order and discipline. That's why Secretary Spencer left.
0: Admiral, before I bring in my colleagues, Lisa Bramwitz and Paul Sweeney, the wonderful new book, Sailing True North, is about these admirals from the past. Let's cut to the chase. What would Hyman Rickover say of this moment for his Navy?
5: He would say that, above all, we have to follow the facts wherever they lead and not be tangled up in politics. And this is what Admiral Hyman Rickover did. He knew the Navy needed nuclear-powered submarines, nuclear-powered aircraft carriers, and he relentlessly followed the facts. He was not a nice-guy kind of leader, but he was someone who always told the truth, no matter how bitter a pill it was to swallow uh, in these troubled times for our Navy, from our ship collisions to this particular case, we need to follow yeah. the facts with real integrity. Lisa,
1: Admiral Stavridis, I'm wondering what the morale hit is like from this. Whether there is any impact in the rank and file in the Navy uh, from the headlines we've been seeing.
5: The Navy would like to just get off the Ridge line here and not be a target. And this really goes back about two years ago when we had those terrible collisions. Um, we've had before that a series of scandals in the Western Pacific, Admirals behaving badly. Here we have some seals behaving badly. I think the general position of the Navy today is, boy, can't we just uh, get off that ridge line and and do our business at sea? But in order to do that, Lisa, we have got to do things right and professionally. And I think the real challenge for the brand new Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Michael Gilday, will be how he takes this moment and turns it into a learning experience for the rank and file Navy.
3: Admiral, can you give us a sense and our listeners a sense of what life is like within the SEALs in terms of their camaraderie, in terms of how they work together and, and how they really stick together?
5: it is without question the tightest fraternity in the world to become a seal you have to undergo a year and a half of unbelievably intense training at times the attrition rate in those cohorts approaches 90 percent if you can imagine Um, these are extremely skilled uh, officers and enlisted men they bond together they go into combat together they are admirable in any way and i want to make a point here The behavior of uh, Chief Gallagher, this posing with trophy corpses, that is not what our SEALs are all about. They are a a superb part of the U.S. Navy. We're all very proud of them. But that doesn't mean that we don't have to from time to time take disciplinary action when something goes wrong.
0: The defense secretary isn't normal. He was on the left hook into Kuwait. He is a lieutenant colonel. He is a Bronze Star member. Have you been surprised that the secretary of defense did not resign with the secretary of Navy?
5: I think that's an intensely personal decision, and I wouldn't want to try and put myself in his place. But I will say this. By all reports, he has... Gone to the White House. He's gone toe to toe with the president. He's taken the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Milley, an Army officer, a very tough combat experience officer. They did everything they could to talk the president out of this course of action. At this point, it becomes uh, the override, mm-hmm. goes to the president. Um, it is an intensely personal moment. I think Secretary Esper probably believes that he can do more good staying on in this situation. Right. But Secretary Spencer took a different course.
0: Uh, This is so fascinating. Of course, James Trevitas, with us, was vetted for vice president the last time around by the Democratic Party. Are we at a point where the president loses his core military support?
5: We are not. And by the way, Tom, I was also asked to Trump Tower and interviewed by President Trump. I did not know that. uh, For a a potential cabinet position. You can look it up on the internet. Uh, But my point is, I'm bipartisan. I'm a registered independent. To answer the question, I do not believe the president will lose core support over this because again the military wants to do its job professionally uh, we will we will soldier up and sail on in this particular case but i think the president needs to think long term about the impact of this on the battlefield because we want our soldiers sailors airmen and marines to be different than our opponents we want to live up to those standards so pardons ought to be very very carefully considered in that environment.
1: Admiral, when you talk about the battlefield, I'm wondering, just to wrap it all together, if you could give us a sense of where you see uh, internationally uh, the bigger threat, the biggest threat or the biggest place uh, of, of focus where the Navy should be uh, centered. I think it is the South
5: China Sea. And this is because China claims the entire South China Sea, a massive body of water the size of the Caribbean Sea, as territorial waters. We need to be forward in those seas. We need to work with our allies, partners, and friends in Asia because we are entering a new era of great power competition. We have got to work with our allies, partners, and friends. South China Sea is where I see your Navy in the decade ahead. Should we or can we
0: show the flag in Hong Kong this holiday season?
5: I think it would be very difficult because yeah. China would not allow us to do so. What yeah. we should do, Tom, is operate extensively in those waters. I would advocate, for example, port visit Taiwan.
0: Interesting. Admiral Stavridis, thank you so much. Uh, greatly, greatly appreciate it for all of us at Bloomberg. The new book, Sailing Well," "Sailing True North, I should say, Ten Admirals in the Voyage of Character is out. It is extraordinary, particularly for those of you older on uh Admiral rickover uh, just extraordinary chapter on Rickover's to be of course with the carlisle group thanks for listening to the bloomberg surveillance podcast subscribe and listen to interviews on apple podcasts soundcloud or whichever podcast platform you prefer i'm on twitter at tom keen before the podcast you can always catch us worldwide i'm bloomberg radio